Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I am fascinated by stories. I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help communicating or marketing anything, look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. Subscribe to hear our next episode. As a podcaster for justice, I stand with my sisters from the Women of Color podcasters community. We are podcasters united to condemn the tragic murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and many others at the hands of police. Find out how you can help at hashtag podcasters for justice. This week, I interviewed my friend Jasmine Dea Singh, who was born in Brazil and is a Latin Grammy-nominated concert and jazz pianist and brilliant composer. He happens to be a Sikh after growing up Catholic. Now working as an adult caregiver when he's not making music, Jasmine is one of the kindest, most gentle people I know. Jasmine is one of the pianists at my progressive Lutheran Catholic Church, Spirit of Grace. Let's meet Jasmine. Hello, Jasmine. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Marie. How about yourself? I'm doing well. It's been a while since I've seen you, I guess, since March, huh? Since March, when we last played together at uh, Spirit of Grace. That's right. And your concert date, wasn't that in early March? Concert at the the church was on February 26th. Okay, right. So that was just a few weeks before everything shut down. (laughs) Exactly. That was my last gig this this year. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm glad it was such a good one, at least. (laughs) Yeah, it was great to turn out. So I really appreciated you and Michael coming to the concert, as well as some other friends from, from church. Yeah, well, it was really amazing to see you in action because you know we only see a little slice of your talent (laughs) you know (laughs) and playing at church and then also even the concerts that you've done but wow it was really spectacular to the idea that you would write a piece like that for so many different instruments and yeah i really enjoyed it thanks so much by the way yes just yesterday we submitted that composition for that album for grammy consideration (gasps) wow can you share the name for our listeners yes it's called ecta the unity project ecta spells e-k-t-a is a Punjabi word for unity. The full name of the, the composition as well as the, the album is Ekta, the Unity Project. Well, I'm really going to cross my fingers about the Grammy thing. That, that would be very exciting for you. You were nominated for a Latin Grammy, I know. Yes, back in 2009. That's exciting. So tell me about your quarantine life. How has COVID-19 affected you? Just like everybody else, you know, trying to adapt to this difficult time. As you know, I, I do work as a caregiver as well. And for the first few months, I was having a very light schedule. I was barely working. So I, as I felt a little safer to have a more, not full schedule, but a little closer to that, to that. So after about two months, I went back to a fuller schedule. But other than that, you know, is you know, constantly trying to be responsible and constantly disinfecting and washing and cleaning and not going out for necessary gatherings and all that. Right. So let's go back to your childhood. Can you tell our listeners about your childhood? Yes. Yeah, so I was born in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, 1962. 
And that's where I lived until I was 25 years old. That's when I moved here. Even though I, I was born in Rio de Janeiro and grew up in Rio de Janeiro, uh, we lived in a section of town that was not exactly close to the ocean. So it was very uh, uh, suburban life, school and friends. And I tell my son how different it was then, you know, playing outside with our friends all day long, except for the, the hours we were in school. And the doors would stay unlocked all day long and things like that. Very nice and happy childhood, you know, with my, my parents and my siblings. And I study music, which is something that I started when I was seven years old and have never stopped ever since. Do you remember, was it your choice to study music or was it something your parents wanted you to do? Initially, it was my father's choice because he was very passionate about music. But because he had a very a poor childhood, he didn't have a chance to study music until he was 19 or 20 years old. So he thought he would give me a head start. When I was seven years old, he took me to have my first piano lesson. And I'm very happy to say that since I was seven, that's something that I have never stopped. Do you remember how you felt when you first played the piano? You, it felt very, very, very natural mm-hmm. because right after I started my piano lessons, my father brought a, bought a piano, uh, an upright piano that was taken into our living room. And uh, he would sit there and play for hours. Before I could play, he already played for us. In fact, there was a time when I was transitioning. I was in between teachers. So my father was my piano teacher for about a year or so. Hmm. Was he a tough teacher? No, no, actually, probably one of the least tough teachers oh, I've ever had. Nice. Yeah. I mean, nowadays, Brazil must be so different. I mean, when was the last time you went back to Brazil? And, and what, what, I mean, I know Rio is not the same place it was when you grew up. And can you talk a little bit about how Brazil has changed? Y- yes, Brazil changed a lot. And it feels like it's still constantly changing. For starters, in 1964, Two years after I was born, there was a coup in Brazil and the military took over and they stayed in power for almost 30 years. To give you an idea, even though I am a Brazilian citizen, I have never voted for president in my entire life as a Brazilian. Because by the time the military left and we started having civilian government and people were able to vote, I was already living here. Never had that experience. So during those years in Brazil, and by the way, the same thing was happening in Chile, in Argentina, different countries in South America that were having a very tough time with the military and the way they were, you know, establishing authoritarian governments and anyone who disagreed with them, you know, would be tortured and killed. And that was happening when I was a kid, seven, mm-hmm. eight years old. It was a tough time. And then we went through a, a much more hopeful phase, early 2000. And now we have, it seems like we had a setback with a terrible president. It seems like there's been a, a wild going back and forth in that country, doesn't it? Yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. And I try to, to, especially now with social media and having access to information very easily, I try the best, my best to follow what's going on there. We try to go there at least once a year because mm-hmm. my wife is Brazilian too. She's from Sao Paulo and from Rio. So we tried to go every year, but we went in 2018 and last year we, we couldn't go and we were getting ready to go this summer, mm-hmm. but we had to cancel it because mm-hmm. of COVID. 
Do you still have a lot of family there? Uh, yes. My brother and sister with nieces and uncles, aunts, cousins, large family. That must be hard not be able to go visit this year. Yes, it mm-hmm. is. Especially not knowing when we'll be able to go back. Yes, I know. We feel that way about England as well. When will we be able to see Mike's mother again? She's 81 now. So He was there a few months ago, wasn't he? He was there, I think, in November. So yeah, he fortunately got to see her then, although she was in the hospital then most of the time. So (laughs) we actually do global family Zoom calls. We've done like three of them. So we have Australia, Oregon, and Cambridge, United Kingdom. Oh, we've been doing that too. Yeah, really, it's fascinating. I mean, you know, I guess it's a positive outcome of the pandemic that (laughs) we're probably connected more than we used to be. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So tell listeners about your family now and where you live now and how you got to this place in your life. As you know, I live in Vancouver, uh, Washington, with my wife and and our 15-year-old son. And my daughter, from my first marriage, lived with us for a few years until last year when she got her own place in Portland. But we're constantly in touch. So pretty much my life nowadays, since I moved here from, from California... It's very much divided and dedicated to family and and music. And initially, Murray, when I moved here in 2008, it felt that I was giving up on a lot because I had so many connections in California that I had developed over the years. And I had to sort of give them all up to move here and get reunited with my family. But I feel like I am uh, discovering other things since I moved uh, to this area of the country. I must say that one of the most meaningful discoveries for me since I moved to Vancouver was coming across the Sikh face and eventually converting. So backing up a little bit, tell us about how you ended up leaving Brazil. You mentioned that it was a a difficult adjustment when you left Brazil to come to the United States. What made you decide to do so? And think back to that time and tell us about that. Well, yes, that that was an interesting decision. And I'll tell you why. Because when I was growing up and studying music, I was mainly very dedicated to classical music. So whenever I thought of eventually studying abroad or moving to a different country, Europe, all countries in Europe always came to mind. You know, I thought eventually I would go to Germany or France. I had never thought of moving to the U.S. But then in June of 1987, this young lady, a friend of mine from college, who had been living here for two years, went back to Brazil and she called me and we talked. And as she told me about her life in Los Angeles, you know, right there I had the spark of maybe giving it a try. So I made the decision in June of 1987 in November 87, just a few months later, I was arriving here. So it was was a little bit spontaneous then? Yes, it was. Very spontaneous. Yeah. And then what happened when you arrived here? Well, I came with uh, no preparation. You know, when I look back, I realized the lack of preparation that was involved in my moving here. I just got here with two pieces of luggage and $1,000 cash in my pocket. The second day, I only had uh, 400 because uh, the, the person that was hosting me, that was, the agreement was that I would be able to live there for at least two months and without having to worry about rent. But they charged me rent and deposit right away. Oh, 
my gosh, really? Yes, they conveniently forgot the arrangement. <laughs> oh dear. So, so that was the, the beginning of my life here. And what did you do to, for money? So I was in Los Angeles for two and a half years. During that time, I had all kinds of jobs. My first one was at a hot dog stand. <laughs> in the San Fernando Valley. After mm-hmm. that, I got a job at a print shop, which was a little better. And then a messenger at a law firm. Mm-hmm. And finally, I got a job which lasted almost a year working as a housekeeper for the actress Kim Basinger. Oh, really? Oh, my God. That's yeah. fascinating. Oh, that's your celebrity. I was going to ask you that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What, what is she like in person? Oh, no, she was very nice, very pleasant, uh-huh. very kind to the people who, who worked for her. Uh-huh. In fact, the timing was such that I started working for her a week after she had just finished filming the shooting the movie Batman with Jack Jack Nicholson. The movie premiere was about a month or so later Uh and she she rented uh, seven limousines to take friends and family and one of them was specifically for her employees. Oh, that's nice. So you got to go in the limo? Yes, I got to go in a limo with other employees and so we went into the theater with her and, and watched the movie together. And then we went back to her house for the reception. Wow. So it does sound like she treated her employees well. Yes, she was very nice. She was very kind. That's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> so, it then, was. so then how long did it take you to get into music then when you were in L.A.? Well, actually right away, because the whole time I was in L.A., even though I had day jobs, I had gigs. But the reason I decided to have day jobs anyway was because I realized how easy it was for gigs to be canceled. So uh, it felt being new in the country, still learning the language and all that, it felt secure to be dependent on something that could be canceled suddenly. So that's when I decided to have something to fall back on. Therefore, I got a habit, you know, of having a day job the whole time I was there. And so what was part of your decision-making process to come up to Oregon then? Well, way before I came to Oregon, or in my case, more specifically Washington, in 1990, I was offered to go play a gig in Pebble Beach uh, near Carmel, Monterey. I don't know if you're familiar with that area. It's about two hours south of San Francisco. Yeah, I've been to Monterey. I got a gig there, a, a weekend gig. So that weekend gig became a full-time gig, four times a week. So I love that place so much. So I just went back to Los Angeles, got my things, and moved uh, to Monterey Peninsula. So I ended up living in the Monterey Peninsula for almost 20 years. Did you have a lot of music opportunities in that area? Oh, yes. The whole yeah. time I was there, uh, I didn't have to rely on the jobs. That's when I became a you know, full-time musician. I was playing gigs almost every night, plus concerts and venture trips and recording sessions, things like that. It was a very productive time as a musician Great. while I was there. I met my wife there. My daughter was born in Santa Monica, but I raised her with her mom in the Monterey area. Uh, later... After her mom and I separated, and a few years later, I remarried. My wife and I met in Monterey, and our son was actually born in Santa Cruz, California. Oh, I like Santa Cruz. I've been there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great town. Yeah. But because my wife's mom and stepfather were already living in Vancouver, Washington, when our son was little, I was traveling a lot, touring a lot as a musician. So she thought it would be a a good idea if we lived at a place 
where she had a support system while I was traveling. So she and RSM moved here in 2006. I needed more time to transition. I didn't move here until 2008, two years later. Mm -hmm. And I'll come here a lot to be with them. They'll go there to to visit me. And finally, at the end of 2008, I moved here. Mm -hmm. That must have been challenging because your son must have been pretty little then. Oh, yes. He was a year and a half or something like that. That must have been hard. So do you like where you live now or do you miss California? Do you miss Brazil? I miss people in Brazil, but I mm-hmm. I don't miss being in Brazil right now, to be honest. Right. I know you'd kind of be going from the frying pan into the fire, wouldn't you, yeah. in terms of leadership? Yeah. Exactly. Because one thing, Marie, is that when we go to Brazil, we go on vacation. So if we're there for a month or two months, it's one type of experience. We're experiencing a vacation. But if I had to live there and depend on if my livelihood depended on being in Brazil, I think it would be a, uh, very tough. Right. I'm not used to that anymore. Are your parents still alive? No, my dad passed away in 2006 and my mom in 2015. Uh-huh. I, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Well, thank you. So let's talk about your process of becoming a sick and changing your name. And you had, if I recall, you had changed your name one time before, right? <laughs> yes. Let's talk about your name process and what you were born as and how, what your name is now and how you went through that journey. Well, yes, my, my legal name is Weber Ribeiro Drummond or Drummond. That's my, still my legal name. But in, back in 1998, I adopted the name Iago, Weber Iago, as a homage to the Roma people. That was a time that I was very much fascinated by uh, the gypsies and Roma people. Mm -hmm. So I changed my name then and I had that name Iago for maybe 20 years or something like that. And when I started practicing the Sikh religion in 2009, I did not take the initiation or baptism, which in Sikh is called Amrit. I didn't go through that for about four years, 2013. And every time we take the initiation in the Sikh religion, men take last name Singh and women take up the last name Kaur, K-A-U-R. Mm-hmm. I had the option of only adding Singh to my existing name, but I felt compelled to change it completely. And so I went through a process. And at the end of that process, the name Jasnam Dea Singh was the outcome. Let's talk about what drew you to the Sikh religion. You were raised Catholic, right? Yes, but I, I was, in fact, when I was the, the age of 14 and 16, 17 years old, I was very much involved with church. I even went to the seminary. I did spend some time in a Franciscan monastery or convent in, um, in Brazil. I was on the, on the path to becoming a, a Franciscan friar and eventually priest. But for different reasons, I ended up not only leaving the, the seminary, but detaching from church altogether. So I went through a, a number of years without practicing any specific religion, mm-hmm. even though the idea of spirituality has always been very important to me. But then when I came across the teachings of uh, Sikhi, it felt like they really resonated with me, how universal the teachings are and the, the acceptance of both spiritual paths. And, and there's one practice in Sikhi, which is called Nam Simram, which is constant remembrance 
of God, you know, no matter what you do in life. So that idea of thinking of God with each breath really spoke to me enough for me to want to go and check out the services and the teachings even more. So I, I found a Gurdwara or Sikh temple here in my area, 2009, and began attending the services there. So I did that, studied the, the religion for about four years when I finally decided to completely delve into it and, and get baptized. And what about your wife and your son? Have they become sick as well or just you? They are very supportive of what I do, but I didn't even try to convince them or convert them because, first of all, because Sikhs don't do that. Mm-hmm, right. Sikhs don't do proselytizing, and they are very open if someone is willing to convert and adopt the faith, but they don't go out and try to convert people. So that's why I wouldn't even try doing that with my family. My son was baptized in the, the Catholic Church, but recently he's been very curious about all kinds of different teachings. Mm-hmm. He's been watching videos and reading and mm. learning more about different faiths. Mm-hmm. So what would you say to somebody who doesn't know anything about the Sikh religion? What's the most important thing about being a Sikh to you? This is one thing that is commonly talked about. They, they call it uh, the three Sikh beliefs. One is what I, I just mentioned to you, which is thinking of God the whole time. It's like a constant meditation. Because usually when we talk about meditation, we have that idea of someone you know, sitting down, crossing the legs and closing your eyes. We do that too. That meditation that you can do in the quiet, you can also do as you're carrying out any life activity. So that's Nam Simran. The other one is standing up for anyone who needs you. Of course, if you if you wear a turban, you can hide. That's why they say the Sikhs are meant to stand out. Mm-hmm. You know? And also uh, sharing with people your wealth. Not necessarily if you are a, a rich person. Whatever you have, you know, always making sure that you're able to to share with other people who need, you know, help, you know, whether it's food, whether it's money or... That's why when you talk about Sikhs missionaries who go out in the world to help, those uh, missionaries never go out in missions to convert anyone. Mm-hmm. Basically, their missions involve bringing shelter, food, and disaster relief. In fact, there are organizations who are very much dedicated to doing that. Okay, that's very helpful. Thank you. How do people, now that you wear a turban and you're very distinguished as a Sikh, how do people treat you? And is it different than the way that you were treated in the U.S. as a brown person? You wouldn't believe what an important question that is, Marie, mm-hmm. because just yesterday I was mentioning this to my wife, with everything that's going on in our country, especially now the Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. I must say that sometimes I feel that me as a turban-wearing Sikh would have an easier time with the police than a Black person would. And that has to change. Of course, you know, a turban-wearing Sikh you know, still have, sometimes has to be careful, you know, depending on where we go, mm-hmm. you know, because people perceive that appearance as something that's to a good extent uh, threatening, you know, foreign. So they commonly uh, use the word terrorist. They still, believe it or not, they still some people associate the, the turban with the word terrorist. Isn't that bizarre? Where do they get that from? I mean, it's just total ignorance, obviously. Yes, exactly. And one thing that Sikhs always say to people is this, don't get us wrong. We don't want to stop attacking us and go attack Muslim people. Mm -hmm. We just want you not to attack anybody. But truth be told, we're not Muslim. When we say we're not Muslims, we're not saying go leave us alone and go bother the Muslim. No, we're saying, you know, respect everyone. 
Mm-hmm. But you have to know who we are. First, know that we're not Muslims. Then next step, come and find out who the Sikhs are. And do you feel like this treatment has been different since the election? Has it been worse for you? Yes, but I think it has been worse for Black and brown people mm-hmm. in general. Sikhs, Muslims, African-Americans, Hispanic, yes. anybody who is not Caucasian, I think right now is having a harder time. Absolutely. Yeah. Unfortunately. So looking back on your life, what would you say are the biggest obstacles that you've overcome? As a musician who is constantly trying to, to improve and, and get better, I feel like I am constantly second-guessing myself and thinking that what I'm doing is, is never good enough, which in a way that's good because it prompts me to keep working to get better. But it feels at the same time that there are so many obstacles to, to get to that point that I might finally be happy with uh, whatever I'm doing. And of course, in addition to that, musicians are artists in general, are always striving to get to that point where they are accepted and get good opportunities to express their craft. So basically, as a musician, I feel like obstacles always exist, you Mm -hmm. know, as long as you live and you practice your art. And also relationships in general, you know, I feel like they're constantly teaching you. When I look back to my moving to this country, I realized that in the beginning, when I first moved here, I would tell people, Oh, my main reason to leave Brazil and come here was to further my career and pursue my life as a musician. But now when I look back, I realize it wasn't quite about that. It was much more than that. It was basically about learning about human relationship. Of course, being a musician is part of that. But my 33 years in this country has mainly been about learning about myself and human relationships, you know, and things like that. Do you remember when you were young, was there someone in your life that you really looked up to and that gave you a lot of hope and encouragement when you were feeling discouraged? Yes. When I was growing up, I was very fortunate to have the kind of family where both parents were very much present. So that kind of support that a child needs from a father and from a mother, I always had. There wasn't a day that I went without that. So I could say that both of my parents were people that I could very easily look up to for the help and guidance that I needed. And over the years, I was lucky enough also to get good friends in Brazil. And also when I moved here, I made friends when I first arrived who are still my friends. And they gave me very much emotional support, sometimes even financial support. So to make my journey here a little easier. So I feel very, very fortunate and very blessed. What are you most proud of in your life? For me, it's a little difficult to use the word uh, proud or pride. Usually when I think about that, I automatically go to the space of gratitude mm-hmm. instead of being proud for those things. So the list of things that I could say I'm proud of, but instead of, I say I'm very grateful for my family in Brazil, my family here, my, my two children, the fact that I am um, I'm a musician, I have music in my life, and I'm also very grateful for having come across the Sikh faith, which has been a very important thing in my life. So basically, gratitude for simple things in life that 
sometimes we take for granted, but I try not to. What about looking back on your life? What are some mistakes that you've made? And what did you learn from those mistakes? Well, there are a few. (laughs) (laughs) For example, as a musician, nowadays, I realize how much more progress I could have made if I had been more humble as a young person, you know? You know, when you go through that phase, you know, that you don't know anything, but you you think you know everything. Uh So I went through that phase. And when I think about those days, I feel like, wow, back then, I thought... I knew so much more than I than I did, and that was not true. That was one thing. Another one is that I, I went through quite a few years when I did drink more alcohol than I should have. That, that was not a good thing. So finally came a time when I decided, no, this is not doing anything for me, you know. So that's when I quit completely, came sober a number of years ago. So that was a, a good decision, too, which came from uh, making that mistake for time. I'll bet being a musician, you're probably around a lot of alcohol. You must have had to make a real conscious choice about that. Yes, that's true. But one thing that made me realize how much that was changing was that, for example, nowadays, I don't think musicians drink as much as they used to. Ah, really? You know, I remember one time going to hang out with these friends in Rio. I was on vacation there. At dinner time, I went to sit down with them and hang out. And I noticed, to my surprise, that I was the only one who ordered a drink, a beer. Hmm. Everyone was having mineral water or orange juice. That was a wake-up call. Wow, things are changing. That did inspire me a lot. Hmm, That's interesting. So right now during COVID-19, you're not able to perform, I'm assuming. How has your music changed? Are you doing a lot of creation right now because you're not performing as much? Or Yes. Well, that reminds me of that joke I read. Good joke? <laughs> really? Yeah, some, some, someone said, I thought I didn't clean my house because of lack of time. Well, it wasn't that. So you think that I, I would be uh, practicing, composing more now? Not necessarily. I tried to, you know, just kind of time with music, uh, composing and practicing. But because my son's not in school and because uh, my wife works from home, we are around each other a lot. So we end up, you know, engaging, which is a good thing. You know, we talk a lot, we do things together. Mm-hmm. So we go for walks around the neighborhood. It's very easy to get distracted. Everybody's in the house. I can totally relate to that. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, because before... I mean, the kids were off at school and and Mike was working more and I had a lot more. I mean, and I'm an extrovert, but now I have people. I also work in my out of my dining room. So I have people around me at all times. At first, it was really hard to get adjusted to, but it's distracting though, totally. How's your family doing? They're all doing well. You know, we're not, there's nothing to complain about. What is something you wish people understood about you? If you think about the way people maybe pass judgment on you because of your turban, for example, what do you wish they understood about you? I wish they understood what that turban stands for. And what does the turban stand for? That very person who might be uh, bullying us, even that person could count on us if he or she needed something. That we are the opposite of the threat they think we we are. That the turban represents justice, social justice, and uh, equality. In fact, you know, when, when people, even in India, people say, you know, if you if you, if you go out on a trip and you are ever in need of help, watch for people with turbans. They will help mm-hmm. you. The Sikhs uh-huh. will help you. 
That's wonderful. And you went to India a few years ago. Was that your first time there? Well, actually, I went uh, last November. Last November, not that long ago. Not that long ago. And I'm so glad I I went when I did, because if I hadn't done that, I would have to wait for God knows how long, maybe two years. And was that your first time there? Yes, it was my Uh first time there. That must have been very inspiring for you to be around all these other Sikh people as well. Oh, it was amazing. I know. It's funny, I, I was in India for just, I don't know, 18, 19 days. But I, I feel so nostalgic for that trip mm. that happened less than a year ago. I went by myself, but I had friends who put me in touch with family and friends there. So it was an amazing experience. Uh, now, the little I know about the Sikh religion, you wear a turban, but you also carry things on your body. Is that right? Yes. We call them the 5Ks because they are articles of faith. Mm-hmm. And each each one of those articles of faith uh, happen to have a name that starts with K. We call them uh, Kakars. And one of them is the Kirpan, the dagger that we carry on mm-hmm. us all the time which represent our commitment to to justice we carry like the kara which is the bracelet kanga which is a little wooden comb we keep on on our hair the whole time and kashira which is the special shorts that we wear and finally the turban is not one of them believe it or not what is actually is that their hair itself now it's called cash we don't cut the hair and we use the turban to to cover and protect it do you feel hot during the summer is it hot to wear a turban no, not really, not because really. Uh, the type of fabric, you know, uh-huh. is, we actually, actually, you know, it keeps my head from getting too hot. Because you have and, it up on your head and you don't have it down on your neck, maybe, huh? I, I, exactly. Yeah. And also, I had one that's, uh, it, it's very, keeps me safe too. I remember a few winters ago, I slipped on the ice and I fell on my back and my head bumped on the asphalt. Oh my gosh. <laughs> But it I protected you. It protected my head. I was yeah. wearing a very, a very big turban. I didn't wow. feel a thing. So the turban, instead of protecting other people, protected yourself, In right? that case, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Have you read or read a book or watched something recently that has inspired you? Well, I'm constantly reading things related to, to seeking and meditation. I have th- different ones here, so I move from one to another. And as far as watching something, I think that I did watch recently during the quarantine that really mm-hmm. were inspiring. I did watch the documentary 13th, which was very educational. Yes. And, and my son and I have been watching all the time, almost every day, different documentaries on, mm-hmm. on the universe and talks about that. Even time travel, we were watching a documentary the other day with the famous scientist, Neil deGrasse Tyson. And it's about so, time travel? It's a documentary about time travel? Uh, because if you go on YouTube, there's a number of videos with him. Uh-huh. Some long ones, some just very casual conversations with people. And uh, we just happened to come across this one where he was specifically talking about time travel. Really? And it was funny because he, he even used some movies as an example huh. to help him illustrate what time travel would be like. He happened to mention a movie that I that I like a lot, Somewhere in Time. Oh, yeah. Christopher Reeve and Christopher Jane Seymour. Yeah. yeah, yeah. My sister and I like that movie, too. It's funny. I have to look for it because I've always been fascinated with time travel. And right now, Mike and I are watching this series, Outlander. Have you heard oh, of my that? wife has been watching that. She yes. loves it. So do you get hooked, too? I had watched the series up to this current season, but Brad and Catherine, you 
Steven really got into it. So Mike didn't used to ever watch anything, but I've gotten him into watching it. So we watch like one episode every night. You should watch it with your wife. You might find it interesting. Yes. Sometimes when she's watching, I sit down next to her to watch a little bit. And then I, I, and I end up getting up and leaving oh, because, really? I, I, because I don't know the story. I missed a bunch of episodes. Yeah, you kind of and need I, to watch it from the beginning. Yeah. And then, <laughs> when I, I start asking her questions, she has to pause. To, yeah. To to me, so it's not very enjoyable for yeah, her. Yeah, I can understand. You have to start from the beginning. There was a book that I read when I was in high school, I think, called Time After Time. And it was about time travel. And I've always been interested in that. So that's, yeah, I'll have to look for that documentary. <laughs> Yeah. Well, interesting that you said that because I've always been fascinated about time travel myself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why maybe you should start with Outlander at the beginning then. You can catch up with your wife and and watch it with her. So if you think back to yourself at age 21, what would you say to him now? I'll tell my 21-year-old self to focus on academia. If I want, as a musician, you know, mm-hmm. that's one thing that I would do differently. I was so focused on uh, different aspects of music, such as, you know, gigging and traveling, stage and all that. But that's one thing that I would do different, you know, put more uh, focus on academia. You know, because after I graduated from college, I stopped there with formal training. But I realized now that if I had continued with a master degree, a PhD, that would be very helpful now with uh, some projects that I want to accomplish. And so what kind of music do you listen to when you listen to music? In terms of classical music, I still favor the impressionistic composers. And in fact, uh, Ravel, Maurice Ravel is one of my favorite composers. I love Chopin and Bach. Uh, Mm -hmm. I love choral music. I'll listen to that anytime. One sound that can never go wrong with me any day, any time of the day is Gregorian chant. Really? If you give me Gregorian chant any day, uh, could be a default music for me. Wow, that's fascinating. (laughs) I would never have guessed that. I thought you were going to say somebody like Louis Armstrong or somebody (laughs) like that. That's great. Does your family like Gregorian chants or is it just you? I think it's uh, me uh, because uh, during my, when I was in seminary, when I left the Franciscan monastery, I went back to Rio de Janeiro and then I started attending the services and spending time at the Benedictine monastery in Rio. Uh And they had this choir doing Gregorian chant several times a day. I would go there and listen to to them. So that sparked even more my interest in the sound. But I I do listen to, to jazz and Brazilian music. To be honest with you, sometimes I have a tendency to listen to music that's very different from what I do. Mm, That makes sense. Is there a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you in your life? There are stories that I hear here and there, and sometimes those stories stay with me for a long time. And uh, even if they come from an event that was initially negative, there was a turn, a twist in the story that made that negative thing turn into something positive, even beautiful. For example, I'll tell you, I wish I, I had, I remember the name of this, the, this young lady, you know, she was 18 years old at the time. She must be in her 40s now. But I read the story when there's demonstration, I forgot what part of the country. On one side, members 
of the KKK demonstrating on the other side of the, the, the plaza, a group of African-American people in different ages. And at one time, this, this man during the confrontation, this member of the KKK fell on the ground and looked like he was going to get attacked and hurt. And this young uh, lady, African-American, jumped on him and shielded, shielded a man from, from being hurt. Really? And he didn't get a scratch. Mm-hmm. So every time I think about that story, it always you know, touches me. Yeah, and that makes sense because of your identity as a Sikh as well. That's part of your tradition as well. Exactly. When people ask me about Sikhs and questions about what religion is all about, usually I say there's so much, so many resources online that are usually direct people to those resources. But one thing I can say is that if you read about Sikh history, you learn that over time they have have gone. I say they instead of we because those things that happened way before I even thought of uh, becoming a Sikh. It's stories of uh, persecution and injustice and violence against them and they did not allow that to change who, who they are. In fact, when people ask me about Sikhs and, and wars, I say Sikhs have never started a war. Never. Mm-hmm. But they have finished many because whenever there's a need for their participation to end injustice, they're always there. So their hardship and their resolve is part of what inspired me mm-hmm. to become one as well. That's really fascinating. Well, I've really enjoyed our conversation, Jasmine. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Oh, thank you, Maria, for for inviting me. And I had a great time talking to you. Be well and let's stay in touch, okay? Okay. Thank you, Jasnam. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye for now. I hope you enjoyed hearing about the Sikh religion and why Jasnam was so drawn to it. On the next episode, I interview Harris Eddie Hill, my first British and trans guest. Harris, who uses the pronouns they, them, is a gender educator and NLP coach your go-to when supporting your transgender and non-binary loved ones. Harris is founder and co-host of the Transsection podcast and author of Trans Plus Gender Identity, A Guide for Beginners, which you can download for free on their website. It's an enlightening conversation, so be sure to tune in. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Look us up on fertilegroundcommunications.com. 